Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather here and to read your word and to think about it. And we pray that you'll just speak to our hearts, come by your Holy Spirit, and uh, let the book live before us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from my point of view, it's nice to be here again. Maybe you're thinking, oh, not him again. Uh, but it's nice to be here and nice to be able to share fellowship with you and, and to um, bring God's word. And uh, so it's a great opportunity. Uh, and we're looking at this passage, and I know it's the wise men. And if you're in the Church of Ireland, you wouldn't be looking at this to the new year. But anyway, we're not in the Church of Ireland here, so we're looking at it today. Uh, and so uh, think a little about dealing with a threat because there's a whole issue in this passage that so many times is missed, and, and that's what we're looking at. So, uh, to start off with, basically by way of introduction, I'm sure you're familiar with the Battle of Trafalgar, which was on the October the 21st, 1805. A major sea battle between Britain and the combined French and Spanish uh, navies during the Napoleonic Wars. And the British fleet was commanded by uh, uh, Admirable Nelson. And it was an attempt for the French to spread their power. Napoleon's final battle was that of Waterloo some 10 years later. And Waterloo was a, a village in the south of Brussels in Belgium. And here Napoleon's uh, French soldiers met the armies of Britain and Prussia. And the battle took place 18th of June 1815. And it was Napoleon's last stand. And under the leadership of the Duke of Wellington, along with other forces who arrived later, they were able to push back the French each time they attacked. And so there was a threat that happened there. And I asked the question, how do we deal with a perceived threat? Uh, and we face challenges in many uh, uh, aspects of society, whether it's a takeover in a business. I was speaking to someone last night and they were starting a, a little business making uh, pastries and buns. Okay, And uh, I was chatting to him and and uh, that's good, but that's good for him. He's maybe doing grand with the business. But to someone else, that will be a threat because there's some other bun maker who's discovering, well, I'm going to, only going to be able to sell half my buns if he's selling the other half. So you have all these threats. Uh, and whether it's uh, colleagues who appear to be eyeing up a role in the, the workplace, uh, there are threats that we, we face. And we face the dilemma of discerning the difference between what is perceived and what is real. And God as our creator knows what we're like. It says in Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He know, remembers that we are dust. And God presents uh, us with various passages of scripture, pictures of hum humanity with all its flaws so that we can identify our own weaknesses and ultimately cast ourselves upon our creator God as the only one who can rescue us and guide us in this earthly life. And what we see in Matthew chapter uh, 2, the first 12 verses, is more than a record of far-traveled visitors worshiping Jesus, but it's a warning to us about what our response to Jesus should be. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And as I was thinking there as well, I've spent, I've spent this past week working with children in uh, uh, over four days there, getting them to build... Um, the stories from the Bible and I have to admit now that I was leading them down a bad path because we were in school, Kilkenny model, uh, model uh, uh, school, uh, the primary school uh, from Tuesday to Thursday and we're doing the Christmas story and we're doing about Mary and Joseph and, uh, and uh, the shepherds and, uh, and it was uh, the shepherds 
and the, the built the stable, that was fine. They, we debated about what transport they were going to use, and uh, we ruled out the, the 4x4, we ruled out the helicopter. We stopped with a horse and cart, and then they were all quite convinced it was a, a, a donkey, Mary on the donkey. But they weren't sure, and, and there's a lot of things to do with the Christmas story that we actually can, we assume that we know, but when we look at scripture, we discover it wasn't like that at all. And one example was that there was a lad yesterday at another club we had in Tullamore, and he was doing a wee build, and he loved a lovely little scene of, uh, uh, of uh, Mary and Joseph in the stable. Everything was grand. I said, uh, I says, uh, what about a star? Oh, a star! Oh, and he, went, and he got a lovely star, put a little shooting star on top of the stable. And I was kind of flicking through there even today, and I discovered there was no star above the stable. So no star, and there's a lot of stuff that we, a lot of stuff that we take in and we think, ah, oh, this is the way it was. And we've mashed all this together, and sometimes we can get it wrong. And so it's good to be able to look back at scripture and, and see what scripture says about these things. And we see here, for example, the setting about the wise men, and there they are in chapter 2. And we see, first of all, concerning them, um, we see their profession is the first thing. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came uh, to Jerusalem. And the original word here for wise men comes from our, uh, our word magician. Um, uh, and these men, they were philosophers, they were priests or astronomers. They lived chiefly in Persia or Arabia. They were learned men of the eastern nations. They were devoted to astronomy, to religion and medicine. They were held in high esteem by the Persian court. They were admitted as counselors and often <clears throat> went into war with the warring armies to give advice and guidance. So they're well respected uh, in their profession. We see their presence. Um, uh, we see their presence. Uh, that whilst we were aware that there, there were three gifts, and again, going back to some of the kids that we've had over this past number of weeks, I was doing stuff in schools, and um, I said, you know, there might have been more than three wise men, because we the, the three presents. And I, I was saying to them, there would have been quite a number of a, a, an entourage or a group coming with these, uh, these wise men. It wouldn't have been just the three. There would have been other people. Uh, look at the example of President Biden whenever he comes. You know, you have good guys who check the, the manholes, you know, beforehand. And you've got guys that sort of do all the PR, and you've guys that security men, and you've guys that do the mopping up, and you've a whole entourage of people. You've these people come from uh, Persia, wherever they came from, uh, notable people. They just there wasn't just two or three of them. Uh, whatever uh, volume of people there were, it was enough to create a significant stir in the town of Jerusalem uh, at the time of their uh, their arrival. So that was their presence. We see their perception. They understood the significance of the star uh, and the appearance of a new star or a comet was regarded as an omen of some remarkable event and many such appearances have been recorded by the Roman historians um, throughout um, history um, uh, uh, reflecting on the birth or death of distinguished men. Apparently at the death of Julius Caesar there was a comet, a comet, comet that appeared in the heavens and shone for seven days. And uh, so these wise men also considered this star um, meaning something. 
and they recognized that the long-expected prince was born. And so God had communicated to them in a language that they were familiar with about this significant thing that happened. And the important thing for these wise men was that they were open to hear from God, and God used that medium uh, to communicate to them. We see their persistence. By the time that the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, could have been about two years since Christ's birth. Um, their journey to Jerusalem could have taken them a year to complete. And even when the star which initiated their quest disappeared, they still continued in their pursuit because it was there for a while and then it was gone and they kept going on. Um, and, the, and their knowledge led them to the most likely place for a, for a, for a king to be born, that of Jerusalem. And they were not afraid to inquire uh, about, the, about the king. So we see that they stuck at it, even though when the star disappeared, they kept going on. They were pro-God. Uh, they were Gentiles. They were not belonging to the commonwealth of Israel. And when the Jews didn't seek uh, for Christ, then the Gentiles sought him out. Uh, and this is one example of what, what the less familiar are, are, were prepared to do. And Matthew Henry, he says, Many times those who are nearest to the means are furthest from the very end. And their intentions of their visit were very clear. In verse 2 it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's what their intentions were. That's what they wanted to do. They came to worship the new king, to honor him as a prince or a king. Here they were not paying religious homage or viewing him as God's son, but it was a start. That was a starting point for them. Uh, and there are many people who come to our church service, maybe to the carol service that you had here recently, or some uh, event, not intending to receive Jesus as a saviour, but God can start a work in their heart. Uh, and uh, there's a starting point. So that's a little bit about the, 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 about the wise men. We look a little bit about Herod, because this passage, there's a whole deeper significance to it. Now Herod was paranoid at least, and more likely in seeing. So that's where you sit with Herod. He believed everyone was out to get him. He had obtained the, his kingdom by much crime. He had two of his sons, um, uh, his wife, and also, this is the lowest of the low, his mother-in-law put to death. So he killed his sons, his wife, and also his mother-in-law um, because he saw them as threats to his kingdom. So whatever his mother-in-law was doing for him, uh, he, he, he dealt with her anyway. He was not a nice person. He was only half Jewish and the Jews didn't accept him. Although he did receive some favor from the Jews because he rebuilt their temple. Uh, temple. He was a terrific architect. His cities are always described as being magnificent. And many of the buildings and systems he designed uh, and built were feats of great uh, engineering and were beautiful and advanced in the technology of the day. It says there in verses 2 and 3, we see his predicament. It says there, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When we consider all that we've learned already, Herod would have been very easily alarmed by any mysterious appearances that which could have been viewed as a threat to his kingdom. Herod viewed, him, uh, viewed himself as a self-appointed king, uh, king of the Jews. Uh, and so this, uh, this 
news that he heard about this king of the Jews that was born in somewhere in the vicinity whenever the wise men were coming to him that unsettled him and it reminds us of the you know the western movies where you get um, the guy coming in um, through the sort of split doors of a saloon and this guy he's drinking at the bar and this guy comes in and everybody looks around at this sort of shady character with a hat and he's just saying this town ain't big enough for the two of us it's one of those scenarios here where, where, where Herod is, 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 is feeling the threat of the ultimatum and anticipating some public showdown with this new king, only to discover it's only, uh, Jesus is only a, an infant. Uh, and by this stage, Herod would have been 30 years on the throne. He must have been aware of his own mortality, uh, and he was known to have a temper. And obviously, uh, when his temper was raised, all Jerusalem went around in fear. Heads were prone to roll, roll whenever he was having a bad day. You know, uh, the, the word would, would begin out, you know, from the palace, uh, Herod's in bad form today. So everybody keeps their head down, scurries away at whatever they're doing. And that's the sort of setup it was. He was the sort of guy that people were afraid of. So we see his predicament, we see his privilege as well. And Herod's privilege was that despite residing in the center of religious worship for the Jewish people, he was known the wiser concerning uh, what, uh, all that was claimed to have happened. He was completely ignorant of this whole situation where the wise men came and asked him, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? And, and Herod's religious leaders either had failed him or had purposely withheld critical information from him. And this is the whole problem. In the middle of the, the center of religious worship, Bethlehem, only a couple of miles down the road, and I was looking through there as well, you see, if you look up the, the, um, the, the, uh, the record in Luke chapter two, uh, where there are one or two, where the, the uh, shepherds went, uh, were told by the angels, uh, about the baby been born and they went around looking for the stable where the baby was born and once they found that the baby was born they were so delighted that they went and told everyone they, they, they spread the news and told everybody but whatever happened there seemed to be a blockage between Bethlehem and Jerusalem either the news didn't get through or else the news was withheld or withheld from Herod and he was a complete looking like a complete fool this has happened maybe a year, year and a half ago and he didn't know a thing about it now that's like sort of your neighbour you know maybe getting married uh, and you not knowing you know, it's that kind of, oh, sure, I should have known about that, I should have sent them a present, look at me, I'm the neighbour. That kind of scenario, you feel completely out of it, and, and, and he must have felt really, really awkward. Matthew Henry says, the first who took notice of Christ after his birth were the shepherds, who saw and heard glorious things concerning him, and made them known abroad, to the amazement of all that heard him. After that, Simeon and Anna spoke of him by the Spirit to all that were disposed to heed what they said. Now, now one would think these hints should have been taken by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they should with, with both arms have embraced the long-looked-for Messiah. But for aught that appears, he continued nearly two years after at Bethlehem, and no further notice was taken of him till these wise men came. So the whole thing was just kind of sitting there. And Bethlehem was only 10 kilometers away from Jerusalem, and Herod had never known. 
That must have been completely. And you could understand this guy who would feel threatened by, uh, of his authority. Uh, and, and Jesus being born king of the Jews. You could, you could understand if Herod was going to throw a wobbler. And uh, we ask ourselves the question. How many people do we know who have been so near Christ. And yet have remained so far from him. There's a little phrase in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was, first, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So basically, the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews was challenging those who were familiar with the truth and never really responded to it. And it was no different in Jerusalem at the time. There were those who should have known uh, they had the privilege of being so near and yet not embracing the joy of the Savior of the world. And I look around, there's places and churches that I go to and there are people sitting there and they're so near and they're familiar with the reality of the, the Bible and it's sitting, is it going over their heads? Are they not realizing? Are they not realizing what's going on? We're living in a world uh, that's now in crisis. There's a panic about COP28 and about Mary Robinson and all the, the heroes of the day. And they're all trying to save the world one drop of less petrol at a time and all the rest of it. And, and we have a world that's completely in crisis. And yet how many people miss the very saviour that we proclaim here today? Uh, and, and that's what's going on. We look around and uh, there, are, uh, there are people in all their goodness, they have missed God. They've been so near, yet they've not embraced Christ. And I hope that's not the case here this morning. We see Herod, not only his predicament, his privilege, we see his presumption. In verses 7 and 8, we read, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them uh, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now Herod's presumption was that in, uh, that in calling a secret meeting with the wise men, he expected these wise men who'd come a year's journey to, 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 to worship um, the newborn king, is told by some little squirt of a king in Jerusalem what to do. So Herod, King Herod thought, well, they, they're going to they're gonna, uh, jump to my beat and they're going to do what I say. And the wise men didn't do that at all. Now, thankfully, God intervened and th told them through a dream that they were to go, go back a different way and totally avoid King Herod and not relay that information back concerning the location of the Christ child. And, and Herod also had tried to cover his intentions with a blanket of religion, saying that he wanted to worship the child, which was far from the truth. So we see not only all this, and that's a little bit about the, the, the wise men, a little bit about Herod, but the response in the whole thing is where the rubber hits the road. We see the response in Herod. And verses 10 and 11, we read there, when they saw, the wise men, when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going to the house they, they saw the child uh, with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And when we examine the, the full 12 verses, you'll start to realize that at the most, one third of the passage is about the wise men traveling and worshiping the young king of the Jews. That doesn't seem right. A third of it. And the other two thirds is about this whole shenanigans with Herod. Like you would say to yourself, the whole thing should be 11 verses out of the 12 should be about the King Her- uh, about the wise men and detailing all that went on as they presented themselves and, and fell down prostrate before this newborn king. That's the way it should be. Now, for example, whenever the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon, the experience was documented in 13 verses in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And the whole thing about the Queen of, of Sheba coming to Solomon was well documented. Uh, and, uh, but the remainder of our reading from Matthew is dominated with a narrative of a king who was concerned about the presence of Jesus and any subsequent threat to him. And that's what it's about. <clears throat> Canon J. John says, If we remove evil from the Christmas story, we create an unreal world and water down the significance of the message of Christmas. That in this infant, God himself has come to do battle with the powers of evil. Ironically, the idea that this Messiah has come to fight evil is a truth that Herod seems to have sensed. That the coming of the Messiah was such bad news for him that it could only be dealt with by brutal force. He knows that this child is a threat to him and to all like him. This has not changed. And you know, fear will do uh, will make a man do awful things whenever something's in fear, right? Now, years ago at home, we had the farm, and there had been a certain time of the year, in springtime, we would, we would have cleared out certain uh, sheds or whatever, uh, taken out whatever old uh, fodder and stuff was lying there, and you would have swept it out and power washed the, the shed and got it ready for the summer and then into the winter again. And there was, there was this area... It was only about this width here, right? It's called the path. And there was a path, and down, years ago we had a big, big hay racks, and the hay would have gone on the end, and fed the cattle off here. And there was a deep here, and there was an area in this corner, and it was just a wee, a, a wee yurt of a place, right? But we, there was stuff in it, and I was cleaning out this, this, whatever it was, and it so happened that there was a board across the front, and I was looking out this stuff, and wasn't there a rat? And the rat couldn't get out. The rat was in there. And he knew he couldn't get out. And he knew I was there. And I was as afraid of the rat as the rat was for, for me. So anyway, this rat was in this corner. And, the bo- and I, the, we always have these bits we would call, we call them black pipe and borosalcathin pipe. And good, very effective thing. Very, very useful around the yard. And if you go with the goddamn with a, a mouse, then the lowest. You'll kill the mouse because you take the legs from the under and he's dead. They got there. But a rat, you have to sort of hit him differently. Uh, but anyway, I can't remember what happened to the rat. I think we got the rat that day. But that rat in the corner, he was trying to come up the board. I, you know, like that game you get where the whack a mole where you, the, the boy comes up and you hit him. I was knocking him down and we took out the rat but he squealed and he squealed and he squealed like nothing else and uh but anyway i tell you whenever you get things and they're cornered it is something else and this guy was uh this rat was cornered and in the same way herod he felt the pressure 
he felt the threat of where he was. And, and um, there, there, there he was. Herod was, uh, Herod was prepared to do an awful lot to retain and secure his kingdom. And his command, for example, to slaughter all the male children under two years of age was very much a th- uh, uh, him feeling the threat. And uh, we read that in Matthew chapter uh, 2 and verse 16. Uh, and it brings uh, Herod on the same level as the pharaohs of Egypt at the time of Moses. When all the male boys in, in um uh, in Egypt, were either were killed at birth or thrown uh, into the river Nile that were born from the, from the Israelites. And the stark reality was that there was a spiritual battle going on. Jesus had come and his presence had been unwillingly declared by these well-meaning stargazing travelers. Uh, and, and yet God's hand of protection upon the holy family through the intervention of the wise men had triggered uh, a fit of rage in Herod. And we're reminded in in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17 says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the the heritage of of the saints of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. And I think, you know, it's great we sing these songs and carols, but we need to get beyond the cattle are lowing, the baby, the poor baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus, look down from the sky and stay by my side until morning is nigh. We need to get beyond that because... Um, uh, we've got this idea of a beautiful baby boy, son of Mary, in an idyllic stable scene. A few shepherds there and a few, she- a few sheep. Um, there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on and it's still going on today. And how do we know this? Because God spoke to Joseph in a dream. In verse 13 it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there um, until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That was the battle, a very real battle. And, and it was such that the best course of action for, for Joseph and Mary at that time was to flee. Joseph had to take his family and run. The danger to Jesus was very real. It reminds me of a completely secular song. You'll, you'll be cross with me for telling you this. Um, there's a song Kenny Rogers ha- has, and, and, and it says, and it's called The Gambler, and it says, you've got to know when to hold, hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. And there's times in life, you know, we need to know the same, and we need spiritual uh, uh, discernment to know when there's times we need to take our stand, um, and, there's, and there's times we need to walk away, and there's times when we need to run away. And we need God's wisdom, direction from God, in the same way as God said to Joseph, you need to run and get to Egypt, because that's the safest place for you. And sometimes, you know, we stand in situations and we try and take our stand where we need to just sort of back off. And there's times where we have to run and there's times we have to walk away. And it's wisdom to know the difference. And that is not easy, but we need to pray for God's help in some of these situations, because there are threats out there 
and, and, and we face them day in, day, uh, day in and day out. And for us, uh, uh, for us also, for what we stand for, the gospel message, how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, a holy and gracious God, a heaven again and a hell to avoid. It's not just heaven. It's heaven and hell. There's, there's an option. There's a choice to be made. People, everybody thinks they're going to heaven. Um, uh, and all those things will be an offensive message to many and it will create a threat to their comfortable, sinful uh, lifestyle and will provoke a, th- a response just in the same way that rat was squealing in the corner, feeling very threatened. His own existence, his own future was threatened in the same way that same threat comes to people today. That's why this whole global kind of COP28 kind of Eamon Ryan, kind of Mary Robinson, you know, all that there. People feel threatened. Their own existence is threatened. And the underlying message is about what should people do with Jesus? The King of Kings has come now, and how should we respond? And, and in, in um, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse." Therefore, choose life that both you and your offspring may live. There's a choice that we all have to make with regard to the gospel, with regard to what Jesus Christ has come to do. Because Jesus didn't come and stay in a babe in the manger and sort of chill out around Bethlehem for for so many years. He came with a purpose in his life and the purpose was to go to that cross and to die for our sin and to set people free. It says in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And you know the Bible is a divisive book and there are many places where I have been and where the faith mission has ministered in the past and because of the gospel message that we stand for and because of the book that we preach from, that we've been rejected from ministry. We're not wanted there. And those people have put us out and they've made their, their, they've made their choice because of the threat that they feel because of the Bible that we proclaim because it's something that's foreign to them. And that's, where we, that's what we face. And we all face that. Uh, and in many cases, you know, a religion which, has, uh, which is so near uh, and yet many people have missed the personal relationship with Christ. And as I said before, what do we do? There are times where we need to stand our ground. There are times when we need to walk away and there's times when we need to run. We see not only a response to the gospel, we see a response in others as well. We've already observed how the wise men were prepared to travel great distances and make their response in sincerity. But we also see a negative response in the hearts of others. Scribes and Pharisees, religious people around the center of religion in Jerusalem, there they were. Um, who, they would have been familiar with the Holy Scriptures and yet they failed to, to, to celebrate the birth of of Christ or make it known maybe they didn't want to make it known maybe they knew maybe they held it from Herod I don't know but but Herod the scribes and the Pharisees there they all were they had the right pedigree the right background the right race the right class the right religious tradition the right culture but Herod and and Jerusalem were so spiritually far away from embracing Jesus and yet they felt the threat and I wonder are we good at identifying threats 
Are we aware that we now live in a, in a world um, who lives so near the Christmas message and yet uh, with so much consumerism, many unfortunately will go through the Christmas season having missed Christ. And that's where we're at. And I trust that as a finish up, that God will give us the ability to have spiritual vision, to see the great need in our communities, and to know guidance on how to respond to it, to the glory of his name. Let us just have a prayer. Father, we recognize we live in a, a world where we face battles, and there are people who feel threatened by the very gospel that we proclaim. And Father, we pray that you'll help us be effective in making the message known, Lord, that it might impact our lives uh, and the reality of what Jesus has done for us, uh, that it might impact others as well. Uh, bless these thoughts to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.